Hello and welcome back to Seeing Red. Hello. I'm Mark. I'm Bethan. <laughs> <laughs> Shut up. In part one of this week's episode, Bethan told us about Shipman's early life, career and subsequent murder spree where he injected his patients with lethal doses of morphine. In this part, we will look at his final murder and how he was finally caught, as well as the effects his crimes had on medicine and our society as a whole. Before we begin, we wanted to say hi to a couple of listeners who reached out to us recently to discuss the show who aren't on social media to chat to us. So hello, Meg, who reached out on YouTube, and hello to Kim, who emailed us. Hi, guys. So we take up the story of Harold Shipman in 1998. Locals had been suspicious about the high numbers of deaths of Shipman's patients and people from a local funeral director's and another doctor's surgery had been in touch with the police. But the team of inexperienced police officers didn't pick up anything of note and his records appeared to be in order, so Shipman was no longer under investigation. Shipman visited 81-year-old Mrs Kathleen Grundy, the former mayoress of Hyde, at her cottage. Mayoress. Mayoress. Is that not how you say it? Mayoress. Mayoress. Oh. I've always said mayoress. Mayoress. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well, I've learned something today. What, mayoress? Yeah. Okay. So Mrs Kathleen Grundy was the former mayoress of Hyde. (laughs) And Shipman had visited her at her cottage early on the 24th of June, 1998, to carry out what she thought was going to be a routine blood test. But there were no records of any blood samples ever being taken. And instead of drawing blood, Shipman delivered a lethal dose of morphine. The previous day, Mrs Grundy had called in at Hyde Town Hall and told a Meals on Wheels officer that she'd been to Dr Shipman's surgery to sign some papers. She told a friend that Dr Shipman was coming to see her at her house at 8.30 for her to sign some more papers and to take a blood sample from her. And later that same day at the charity shop, she appeared her usual self. She told them she was going to have her ear syringe that evening and she wasn't really looking forward to it. She had told her best friend, May Clark, that she was pleased that the doctor was calling at her home, but the very next day she was dead. She was found fully clothed on her sofa by friends who had stopped by when she missed a lunch get-together. One of the men who came to kind of see where she was knew that she was a patient of Dr Shipman's and so phoned his surgery and Shipman arrived about 10 minutes later. He told them that she had had a heart attack and he would return in the morning with a death certificate. Shipman recorded old age as the cause of death on her death certificate. She was fit and healthy, but her daughter Angela Woodruff was advised by Shipman that an autopsy was not required, and so Mrs Grundy was buried. However, Angela was not satisfied. Her mother was, as I said, fit and healthy, and her death was a huge shock, so Angela took it upon herself to try and dig a little deeper. Angela was a lawyer and had always handled her mum's affairs, so she was shocked to discover shortly afterwards that her mother had made another will without telling her, and in this will she had named Shipman as the beneficiary for the bulk of her estate. Kathleen had cut her own children out of her will and left her entire £386,000 fortune to Shipman, saying in the document, I give all my estate, money and house to my doctor. My family are not in need and I want to reward him for all the care he has given me and the people of Hyde. What are your thoughts on that will then, Mark? 
you just couldn't make this up, could mm-hmm. you? You know, I want, you know, he's literally written that himself. Yeah. I want to reward him for all of the care that he's given to me and the people of Hyde. Mm-hmm. He's been out killing the fucking people of exactly. Hyde. Exactly. I mean, Disgusting, this is Jekyll and Hyde, isn't it? Jekyll mm-hmm. and Hyde. Ooh. Do you like that? Ooh, See? Hyde. Um, yeah, that's just, that's shocking. This was, I, I mean, I know a little bit about the case and I know this was absolutely his downfall mm-hmm. and it just so happened that Angela was a lawyer. Um, so she knew what she was dealing with here. And this new will had arrived at the solicitors on the same day that Mrs. Grundy had died with a letter enclosed, which had been typed on the same typewriter as the will. Both were signed by Kathleen and the letter said, Dear Sir, I enclose a copy of my will. I think it is clear in intent. I wish Dr. Shipman to benefit by having my estate, but if he dies or cannot accept it, then the estate goes to my daughter. I would like you to be the executor of the will. I intend to make an appointment to discuss this and my will in the near future. But of course, she didn't make any appointment. The solicitor had contacted Angela as this was really unexpected and they weren't expecting to have a letter and the will. And Angela was convinced that the document was a forgery. Her earlier suspicions were furthered with this and so she now was even more convinced that Shipman had murdered her mother and that he had forged the will to benefit from Kathleen's death. So she went straight to the police. Go, Angela. Yeah, absolutely. The police agreed that the death was suspicious, Kathleen's body was exhumed and a post-mortem revealed that she had died of a morphine overdose which had been administered within three hours of her death. The police knew this was precisely within the time frame of Shipman's visit to her. Shipman tried to explain this away by claiming that Kathleen was an addict and he showed detectives notes that he'd made on her digital medical files but the police were able to note that this had been added after Kathleen's death. I mean, what an absolute dick, though. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, surely that there is an audit trail, even 20 years ago in 1998. You know, we're dealing with computers then and there's going to everything's going to be time stamped. So I just don't think he realised that. I don't think maybe. But isn't that awful that, you know, he was trying to kind of um, say that she was an addict, a morphine addict. So he's really ruining her reputation after her death and blaming her. Mm hmm. A handwriting expert examined both the signatures that were supposedly signed by Mrs Grundy on the letter and the will and found that they were forgeries and apparent witness signatures were also forged. Shipman had also left a fingerprint on the will. What a dick. Mm -hmm. It was the end of the murder spree for the GP. His home was raided and in the house was the typewriter that he had used to forge the will and the letter. Shipman was arrested on September 7th, 1998. So the police were certain that Kathleen couldn't have been his only victim and they created a list of 15 possible murders who Shipman had signed death certificates for and who were patients of his. A pattern soon emerged of high doses of diamorphine, heroin, with him then signing the death certificates and making up health issues on the medical notes for his patients. And the police established that Shipman would, in most cases, alter these medical notes directly after killing the patient to ensure that his account matched the historical records. And like we said a few minutes ago, what Shipman had failed to grasp was that each alteration of the records would be time-stamped by the computer, so the police were able to ascertain exactly which records had been altered. Disgustingly, Shipman had actually confided in a patient a month before his rest that he knew the evidence pointed to his guilt and he said to her that the only thing he had done wrong was not having had Mrs Grundy cremated, saying if I'd have had her cremated then I wouldn't have all this trouble. Horrendous, isn't he? Mm. He'd also said to this patient that after all the trouble Mrs Grundy had put him through, he deserved her money. 
He claimed that the surgery staff were going to be given some of the money and that they had all met to decide what they would do with it. They'd agreed to spend it on a week's holiday each and he also claimed that part of the inheritance would be given to an old people's home and some of it would be shared among new mothers who had had babies on the anniversary of Mrs Grundy's death. So, what the fuck? Yeah, he's that's just trying just to pretend bizarre. that he was going to do the right thing. With yeah, but that's also gifted. just really weird mm-hmm. as well. Like, oh, we're all going to have a week's holiday on it and we're going to give it to mothers who've had babies on the anniversary of Mrs. Grundy's death. It's, so weird, isn't it? That's just weird. He could have come up with something better. And I also think you could have just altered her will to say, give all of my stuff apart from 10 grand to the doctor. No, they wouldn't have questioned that. It would have been a lot less suspicious, mm-hmm. but he He's he was greedy, wasn't he? Yeah. He wanted all of that money, or exactly. the majority of it anyway. Following extensive investigations, which included numerous exhumations and autopsies, the police charged Shipman with 15 individual counts of murder, as well as one count of forgery, and so luckily he was brought to trial. His trial began on the 5th of October 1999 at Preston Crown Court, where he was charged with the murders of the 15 women by lethal injections of diamorphine between 1995 and 1998, and he denied all charges. He basically stated his case that he had not administered morphine or diamorphine to the women, and he just didn't know how this fatal dose had been administered. And he also pled not guilty to forgery, because he was charged with forgery for forging the will. Opening the prosecution's case, Richard Henriques QC said there is no question in this case of euthanasia or what is sometimes called mercy killing. None of the deceased was terminally ill. The defendant killed those 15 patients because he enjoyed doing so. He was exercising the ultimate power of controlling life and death and repeated it so often he must have found the drama of taking life to his taste. I thought that was almost as poetic as you, Mark. It is, isn't it? I think, you know, lawyers and barristers and all of that, they just, it's almost like a theatre for them, isn't it? Mm. So, you know, they love delivering these lines that they just know are going to get out in the press and people will leap all over it. So, you know, that's a great line, isn't it? Yeah. Now I'm repeating it in my podcast, but it is a good line. And we're talking about it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well done you. Well done him for coming up with it, I think. Well done him. That's what I meant. (laughs) Not you, fuck's sake. What are you saying, me? Nah, him, Richard Henriques QC. Oh, I didn't know whether to say his surname a bit French, like Enrique, but then I, I was I just thinking him. that Enrique. Yeah, no, that I I can't really do it. But it was good. I enjoyed that. Okay, good. I have to um, get on Babbel, won't I? Exactly. Learning French, get the accent perfected. <laughs> so Angela Woodruff, the daughter of Mrs. Grundy, was the first witness at the trial, and she has been described as having a forthright manner and apparently her unremitting determination to get to the truth impressed the jury, and any attempts by Shipman's defence to undermine her were really unsuccessful. Next, a government pathologist led the court through the gruesome post-mortem findings where morphine toxicity was the cause of death in most instances, and proving that Shipman had lied about the causes of death. A police computer analyst testified how Shipman had altered his computer records to create false symptoms that his dead patients had never had and also showed that in most cases he had recorded these false symptoms within hours of their death. It's all damning, isn't it? You know, it obviously really he's is. denying it, but, you know, the, the evidence is there. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of circumstantial evidence, but there looks like a lot of hard evidence as well. Yeah. Fingerprint analysis of the forged will had shown that Mrs Grundy had never even handled the will and her signature was dismissed by a handwriting expert as a crude forgery. 
The trial progressed on to the other victims and the accounts of their relatives, and with every new witness, the pattern of Shipman's behaviour became clearer and clearer. The jury was shown evidence of him pretending to call for an ambulance, but then were told telephone records showed that no actual calls were made. And the final part of the case against Shipman was the evidence of his drug hoarding. He had falsely prescribed medication to patients who didn't need morphine, and he had overprescribed it to others who did. He had also visited the homes of the recently deceased patients to collect up unused drug supplies for, in inverted commas, disposal. The trial heard from numerous witnesses and experts who confirmed the patterns to Shipman's behaviour. They showed the evidence of him falsifying medical records, and in all of the 15 cases there had not been a single post-mortem, a single ambulance actually called by Dr Shipman, a single proper examination of the patient by him, or a single attempt at resuscitation, and there were seven patients of the 15 where Shipman had falsified their records. Shipman's defence tried to get Mrs Grundy's murder tried separately as this was the only case that included a real motive but this was unsuccessful so he had to be tried for all of them at the same time. Richard Henriques QC said in his closing speech to the jury that Dr Shipman had breached the trust that the victims and their relatives had placed in him saying it is quite incredible proposition that these 15 ladies could have died a natural death having regard to their state of health prior to facing Dr Shipman. He said he took advantage of their grief and their lesser knowledge of medicine and procedures. As they grieved, this determined man employed every device to make sure no post-mortem examination took place. He said that Dr Shipman would overbear, belittle and bamboozle the relatives until they accepted his word that they should not put their mothers through a post-mortem examination. Nicola Davies QC defending said in her closing speech to the jury that the prosecution had failed to produce a motive. She said that Shipman had been a caring GP since the 1970s. She claimed that the forensic scientist working on the case had broken new ground. There was no comparable data available and the samples were taken from the alleged victims' bodies after death, so they could have been subject to changes. She said the discrepancies in Dr Shipman's records, which the prosecution claimed was him covering his tracks, were more in keeping with an eccentric practice than a cunning murderer. And I feel like she's really clutching at straws by this point. She really is, isn't she? And it's really making me think about um, solicitors that have to go and defend somebody that they blatantly mm-hmm. know is guilty, but they're, they're just kind of doing their job when they're presenting it, yeah. the argument against him being a killer because mm-hmm. there, there is some kind of evidence there that he might not be. It could just be coincidence, blah, blah, blah. But yeah, like she must have known. And it's like she must have almost been just laughing to herself in court, mm-hmm. trying to like coming out with all this bollocks and expecting people to believe it. She's mad. Yeah. In his summing up, the judge, Mr. Justice Forbes, addressed the court saying this is a tragic and deeply disturbing case. The allegations could not be more serious. A doctor accused of murdering 15 patients. You will have heard evidence which may have aroused feelings of anger, strong disapproval, disgust, profound dismay or deep sympathy. You must put all such feelings and emotions to one side and not allow it to influence your judgment. You must consider the evidence dispassionately which I think is all well and good saying, but how are you going to do that as a juror? Yeah, and isn't that the whole point that you kind of bring your own feelings and values to the case so that, you know, you've got a cross-representation of society? And I of course, so, they've got you're a... supposed to only act on the facts. You're not supposed to, I, if you dislike totally the that. person in the dock, you can't. Yeah, I suppose. Mm. I, yeah. I I'm know not going to say mean. anything else here because I don't, I don't want to ever get an out that I've said something I shouldn't and then I'm never considered for jury duty <laughs> because I would absolutely love to do oh it. I God, know we've spoken about too. it a lot, haven't we? Mm-hmm. 
we talked about it in the Facebook group, but I'd love to do it. Oh, I absolutely would. I don't know if we'd be able to, though, now. Even just doing a true crime podcast, I'd probably be like, "Mm, not too sure. Yeah, because they'd ask you, like, you know, what's your understanding of this or that or the jury system? I don't know. Mm, Interesting Um, one. If you get to do it and I don't, I'm going to be really pissed off. Vice versa. Yeah. So anyway, Ooh, we could back do it to together, Bethan. Oh, we don't... could do it together. We could serve on the same jewelry. I've just thought, perfect. And use a Ouija board. Perfect. Yeah, like in one of our old cases. <laughs> Harry and Nicola's murder, bless them. Trying to contact oh, was it the Harry dead. And, Harry and Nicola Fuller. That was yeah. a brilliant episode. Even if I do say so myself, you did a very good job with that one. I really. And that's your only that compliment one. for the whole episode. <laughs> Fine. The judge advised the jurors that whilst Shipman had lied on numerous occasions, this was not evidence of guilt. And of course, there was no direct evidence of Shipman killing his patients or any witnesses who had seen him administer the fatal doses. The judge told them to base their decision on what they had heard in the courtroom and not think about anything they had seen, read or heard outside of the trial. He also told them not to judge Shipman based on his actions in court because the strain of being on trial could change someone's behaviours. Now, I feel like this is because Shipman basically looked like an absolute twat most of the trial. There was a brilliant quote from one paper that I read, which was, Shipman's haughty demeanour throughout the trial did nothing to assist his defence in painting a picture of a dedicated healthcare professional. Despite their attempts, meaning his defence team, his arrogance and constantly changing stories, when caught out in obvious lies, did nothing to endear him to the jury. That's interesting, though, because it's almost like, you know, he's on trial, really, for his life, essentially, um, and his liberty, but really his life, because we know what happens at the end. Um, The fact that he just couldn't put a lid on it. He Mm -hmm. couldn't put a lid on that arrogance. Or maybe he thought what had worked historically with families of his victims when he'd tried to kind of beat them down and and be quite haughty, that air of authority had worked in shutting them up. Maybe he just thought the same approach would work in a court, which Mm -hmm. it was never going to. But Or it could just be that it was just a trait of his and he couldn't, literally couldn't change his personality. Yeah. And then some people do wonder whether this was, he just wanted to get caught finally maybe so it could be almost like a relief for him yeah and after six days of deliberation on the 31st of january 2000 the jury found shipman guilty of all 15 counts of murder and the one count of forgery mr justice forbes sentenced shipman to life imprisonment on all 15 counts of murder with a recommendation that he never be released and a sentence of four years for forging grundy's will to be served concurrently Shipman was struck off the General Medical Council register 10 days later. Shipman continued to deny his guilt and he never once made a public statement about his actions. In prison, he actually continued to give medical advice to other patients. So Shipman served around two years at Franklin County Durham before being transferred to HMP Wakefield in Yorkshire. And one prison source told papers he wasn't notorious in the sense that everyone wanted to get him. Everyone wanted to befriend him. Half the prisoners wanted to befriend him because of his notoriety. And this source also said on the wing, prisoners used to go to him for medical advice, problems and stuff. They would go to him with illnesses or a bad arm, stuff like that. But prison officials worried about what this could mean for their inmates. And they were really worried that he might kill again while incarcerated. And he did tell one inmate, remember, I am a doctor. I know where to cut you. So he wasn't really helping himself there. 
Prison officials warned that the serial killer could kill again after he began grooming inmates in the hospital wing of the jail. Shipman befriended one wheelchair-bound prisoner who he pushed around the health centre and he would fetch and carry meals for others, but experts advised that he should be kept away from any vulnerable or frail patients for fear that he would try and kill them too. A 2003 risk assessment from HMP Franklin said it is prudent that under no circumstances should Mr Shipman be allowed access in a caring position to any inmate, elderly or not, as this could act as a trigger to further offending. And it's almost like at this point they're they're sort of saying this is, well it is anyway, but this is an absolute compulsion, he won't be able to help himself. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, it's not that um, he's not wanting to be rehabilitated. He's just physically and mentally incapable of not wanting to kill people. Yeah, that's exactly how they've kind of shown it. And I think that's the case with this guy. He just Mm. seems incapable of not doing it. And here we are now talking about Primrose, who I know you were excited to discuss. I'm very excited. Yeah, I mean, she stood by her husband. I I mean, you can't deny that whatsoever. She faithfully maintained his innocence and she would defend him to anyone. Um, Newspapers would try and ask her stuff and she'd just be like, no, he's innocent. He's innocent. And she was, I mean, obviously he's guilty, but you want to have someone like her in your corner. (laughs) Yeah, of course. Yeah, you want someone sticking up for you. Mm Mm-hmm. She was also the one who collected his belongings from his surgery, so meaning the doctor at the beginning of the case, Dr Hernan, had no computer when he arrived on his first day. But despite Primrose's defence of Shipman, an investigation into his crimes did then begin to highlight that the 15 convictions were just the tip of the iceberg of his killings. It was reported early in 2000 that the police were investigating 192 deaths, And although they had enough evidence to prosecute in at least 23 cases, they decided not to prosecute. This decision was made on the basis that due to the publicity surrounding the original trial prosecution and convictions, the opportunity for a fair trial just wouldn't be possible. And I think that's quite quite right, to be honest. Yeah. Plus, he's in now for life. So what's it going to gain? Well, sometimes they just sort of say, you know, we're convicting them on... Um, X counts of murder and we're asking for X number of murders to be taken into consideration Mm. and it's almost like a a sort of ceremonial nod to the fact that he is guilty of all of the crimes but look we just can't convict him on all of them but but we are saying in court that yeah we we do believe he was guilty so maybe Mm. they they said something like that in court. And maybe it's almost for like the families and the relatives perhaps as well to know that somebody has been caught for that murder. Yeah. The University of Leicester assigned Professor Richard Baker to do a clinical audit of Shipman's patients in comparison with a practice that wasn't administered by a serial killer, and the conclusion that Shipman was most likely responsible for killing at least 236 patients over a 24-year period. Dame Janet Smith also led an inquiry into Harold Shipman's medical practice, and this inquiry was to be in three phases. So it would consider how many patients were killed by Shipman, the means he used and the period over which they took place. Secondly, the action of the statutory bodies and others involved in the investigations following the deaths. And then lastly, what steps should be taken to protect patients in the future? So while it's completely unknown how long Harold Shipman was killing his patients for, experts guess it may have been as soon as months after obtaining his medical licence that he started. And Dame Janet Smith's inquiry came up with 218 deaths caused by Shipman. 
So whatever the exact number, the sheer scale of his murderous activities meant that Shipman was infamous for being the most prolific known serial killer in the world. He remained at Durham Prison throughout these investigations, maintaining his innocence, and he was loyally defended by his wife Primrose and his family. When he was moved to Wakefield Prison in June 2003, visits from his family were made a lot easier, and inquests into the deaths of a number of his former patients then started in August 2000. On the 16th of August 2000, the coroner's verdict was that Sarah Ashworth had been unlawfully killed, and then the same verdict was given following the inquests on Alice Kitchen and Elizabeth Meller. In 2001, there was an inquest into the death of Hilda Hebert, although she had been cremated and there was no forensic evidence. And the coroner in this inquest said that the circumstantial evidence was so strong that no other verdict was deemed possible, which I thought was amazing that they could do that without being able to examine her body. By April 2001, a total of 27 inquests had taken place. Only in two cases was an open verdict given, with the coroner deciding that there was insufficient evidence to reach a verdict of unlawful killing. So 25 additional confirmed. The police had a list of a further 299 patients who they believed may have been killed by Shipman. And um, basically the Home Office would just decide as and when whether there's going to be further inquests in these cases. Primrose continued to visit Shipman every week and she just refused to believe his guilt. So what is your thinking around Ship, uh, around Primrose then? What what do you think about her? Um, I don't like the look of her. Mm-hmm. So I remember seeing her on the news at the time because I think I she, I might she be, looks scary. She does. She did. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm conscious that someone's mum and somebody's daughter, etc. So... Um, I, I don't know. She just had an unusual look about her. Um, but that's probably with the benefit of hindsight that her husband was, you know, mass serial killer. Um, I'm just, you know, my personal thinking on this is, did she really know nothing? Mm-hmm. Um, she, she absolutely might have not been aware of what he was up to. But obviously, it does throw into doubt whether she knew something. Yeah. And I want to make it clear, she was, yeah, she was never under suspicion, never charged or arrested or anything. So, you know, she is completely innocent, but that's just my opinion. Mm. So the General Medical Council charged six doctors who had signed cremation forms for Shipman's victims with misconduct, claiming they should have noticed the pattern between Shipman's home visits and his patient's deaths. All of these doctors were found not guilty. And I think this is a really tough one, as it is easy to say that they should have noticed this pattern with hindsight, but clearly they weren't suspicious enough at the time. I agree. And I think like, you know, I'm not just saying it because we're in such a difficult time at the moment and I'd never want to bash a doctor. But, um, you know, they, they sort of work at real pace mm-hmm. and, you know, put in long hours. So, you know, if they didn't notice anything, they didn't notice anything. Don't beat them up over it. I think as well, there's six different doctors there. If it was maybe five of them had noticed stuff, but one of them hadn't, that one should have noticed, but none of them did. So that speaks volumes. I think so. The Shipman Inquiry recommended changes to the structure of the General Medical Council, and I'm going to look at these recommended changes in a bit, but the next part of our story is so frustrating. Shipman hanged himself in his cell at Wakefield Prison at 6.20am on the 13th of January 2004, on the eve of his 58th birthday, and was pronounced dead at 8.10am. A prison service statement indicated that Shipman had hung himself from the window bars of his cell using his bedsheets. 
So Primrose Shipman said that the first she'd known of her husband's death, which I do feel bad for her with this, was that their son Sam heard a radio report that his father had been found hanging in his cell and the family were not told by the prison. Yeah, that is bad. That's horrible, isn't it? No matter what. Yeah, it was their dad, her husband. Yeah. I do understand, yeah, even though he was a monster, Mm -hmm. um, they're going to still have love for him and feelings. So, yeah, that's an awful way for them to hear that he died. Yeah, but it just frustrates me so much that he was able to do this and not then ever talk about it or give any sort of closure to anybody or give any answers or admit his guilt or admit even, his guilt or even. express remorse. Mm-hmm. And I think it's quite interesting that he was found hanging and dead on the eve of his birthday, because mm-hmm. I wonder if he, you know, was in a period of reflection in the approach to that 58th birthday, thinking, you know, I might have another 30 years behind bars and I just can't cope with it. Or I don't want to have another birthday here, or I just don't want to have a birthday here again. I mm-hmm. don't know. Yeah. Some of the victims' families actually did say that they felt cheated because this suicide meant that they would never have the satisfaction of his confession. Um, They'd never get any answers as to why he committed his crimes, so exactly what we just said. And his death divided national newspapers. So the Daily Mirror branded him a cold coward and condemned the prison service for allowing his suicide to happen. And The Sun ran a celebratory front-page headline saying, Ship, ship, hooray! It's quite like, you know, classic son, isn't it really? Standard son. And that bothers me a bit because although he is a horrible person, um, I suppose it goes back a little bit to what we were talking about with capital punishment a while ago. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't think you should ever really celebrate someone's death, but I would always say I've never been in a position where a relative of mine has been murdered by someone. So I'm coming yeah. at it from that naive angle but yeah i don't i just find that really distasteful Mm -hmm. headlines like that you know whoop de doo he's dead no it's distasteful the independent called for an inquiry into shipman's suicide asking them to look more at the state of britain's prisons and the welfare of inmates so we were kind of saying about why he killed himself when he did and apparently he'd allegedly killed himself at this point so his wife could cash in a £100,000 maximum pension payout. Um, apparently he'd kind of planned it so Primrose would inherit a £100,000 payout from his pension and she'd be entitled to £10,000 a year from this pension but if he died after his 60th birthday she would have only been entitled to 5000 a year. Ah, oh, okay. Which does make sense to do it before he was 60, but it was on the eve of his 58th. So I'm not really sure whether that's specifically the reason or whether it is something like you said, he was then in a bit of a, a kind of looking back on his life sort of mood because it was his birthday. Yeah, I think so. I think he would have been in a reflective mood, mm-hmm. um, thinking a lot and maybe depressed and and decided to to take that way out yeah and additionally there was some evidence that primrose had begun to suspect his guilt so yeah i know he'd refused to take part in some courses and if he'd have taken part in those courses he would have been encouraged to acknowledge his crimes he refused to take part so he got a temporary removal of privileges including the opportunity to telephone primrose And apparently during this period, he received a letter from her that said, tell me everything, no matter what. So maybe he just felt like even she doesn't believe me now. What's the point? Yeah. And that that does really kind of say to me that, yeah, she she didn't know anything. I think so. I didn't want to say about it before because I didn't want to spoil this moment. But yeah, yeah. I think she she totally was 
um, unaware of the crimes that he'd committed. I think, which makes me really feel for her now. Actually, I think if if he'd have been gaining something, I mean, if he'd have forged everybody's wills and got money out of everybody, maybe I would believe that she was involved in a little bit because she would have benefited. But what yeah. would she have benefited from with this? Except yeah. to keep him happy and at home? I don't know. And also, what would he have been like to live with? You know, this is a really controlling guy, um, a real Jekyll and Hyde character, no pun intended, because it happened in the town of Hyde. But, you know, he could have been abusive to her, for all we know. She could have endured a horrific marriage, bringing up children in a home that had domestic abuse, and, you know, she did her best. So, yeah, I, I do take it back. I actually feel really sorry for her. It's so interesting, isn't it, how you can kind of judge somebody based on what you see perhaps in the press and then yeah. when you think about them a little bit more, you do think, oh, maybe there's more to it. And we're all human, you know, we do judge people and that's okay, that's that's how we're wired. Um, but that's why I think it's good that we cover cases like this and we have a show like this so that, you know, we ourselves but also our listeners can get a real good understanding of, of the crime. They might have just heard snippets of it on the news 20 years ago like mm -hmm. I had with this and you draw opinions then. And then when you kind of have a bit of a deep dive into it, you kind of like, oh, actually, I take that back. And I never realized that at the time. And it does change your opinion. Yeah, I really like to hope as well that somebody would want to defend me to the death like this as well. I just think she was, but yeah. apart from potentially this letter, which he apparently received, she stood by him. And I just think fair play to her. It would have been yeah. easy to kind of go, oh, well, I'll just wash my hands of him. He's been convicted now. Oh, of course it would have. You know, she was still living in that community. Mm -hmm. So that would have been difficult. And she could have totally sort of said, look, you know, I knew nothing. And, you know, he's no husband of mine. But she stuck by him. And that must have been tough. Yeah. I also wonder, because this was actually only probably eight years after Fred and Rose West um the Fred and Rose West case came to mm -hmm. attention. So I wonder if there was almost a bit of an element at the time that women can be responsible for he heinous crimes as well as men. Mm -hmm. And we ultimately realised that actually it was Rose that yeah. was the worst culprit. It was Fred that was kind of um, just brought on board by her. And maybe we thought, oh, it's the same thing again. So it was just too easy to draw that conclusion because we'd seen it before mm -hmm. just a few years earlier with yep. Fred and Rose. Like in recent memory, yeah. Yeah. So Shipman had also kept a prison diary, which the inquest into his death described as showing a man in deep despair about being separated from his family. And he had complained that the regime at Wakefield was much harsher than at Franklin Prison. He had been downgraded from standard to basic privileges in December 2000. Basic bitch. Basic bitch privileges in December 2003. Because he didn't interact very well with the officers. So as a result, visiting times and phone calls were restricted and he had to wear prison clothes. So that could also all be kind of putting in reasons as to why he might have wanted to kill yeah, himself. definitely. And on the night before Shipman's death, he had been, according to another prisoner, very quiet and seemed a bit more subdued than normal. A 2005 inquiry found that Shipman's suicide could not have been predicted or prevented, but that procedures should still be re-examined. So a pharmacist who dispensed prescriptions for diamorphine from Harold Shipman to kill many of the patients was actually cleared of any wrongdoing as well. So whilst she had dispensed excessive doses um, and failed to keep appropriate stocks of diamorphine, um, they kind of said that really there was no evidence that she should have known about that. Um, and actually, 
that she should have been praised because if it wasn't for her meticulous record keeping, um, a lot of the information about Dr. Shipman could have been lost. So whilst she yeah. didn't notice it was excessive and she perhaps should have done, actually they said, no, she shouldn't have. She kind of kept a really good record, which was quite good. And also she was just doing her job and dealing with multiple prescriptions. So, you know, and it's easy to say after the event, but unless you know to look out for something, you're not going to notice it. Yeah. So also in 2005, it came to light that Shipman may have stolen jewellery from his victims. In 1998, the police had seized over £10,000 worth of jewellery that they'd found in his garage. And in March 2005, when Primrose Shipman asked for its return, police wrote to the families of Shipman's victims asking them to identify any pieces of jewellery that might have been from their loved ones. Any unidentified items were then handed to the Assets Recovery Agency in May. The investigation ended in the August. The authorities returned 66 pieces to Primrose Shipman and auctioned 33 pieces that she confirmed were not hers. Proceeds of the auction went to Tameside Victim Support. And so I'm not sure if he was necessarily stealing the jewellery and then using it for anything particular or whether it was just trophies because the only piece that yeah. was returned to a murdered patient's family was a ring that the family were able to show was theirs because of a photograph. So it doesn't yeah. doesn't seem like I he think... was doing it for the money. Oh, no, no. I would say they were either trophies or they were presents to Primrose. Yeah. Oh, can you imagine wearing a necklace and then you're like, find out that that was what your husband had done or, to get you that? you know, she lived in the town of Hyde. You know, imagine if she's out shopping at a local co-op wearing a necklace and some someone comes up to her and says, my mom had that necklace oh God, and she was a patient of your husband's mm-hmm. and we've not had the necklace since. I mean, Jesus. Yeah. So theft doesn't seem to have been the main reason for Shipman's crime and Kathleen Grundy was the only person whose will he forged in an attempt to inherit her state. So whilst this may have been part of the reason for his crimes, it doesn't seem to be the main reason. Some people have theorised that he made mistakes doing this in kind of a twisted way of getting caught because he was done with murders or his crimes. Was it a genuine attempt to steal her money to fund his retirement or was he just tired of killing and wanted to get caught? It's interesting, isn't it? Because mm-hmm. it's the only case where he forged a will. Yeah. And he didn't need the money. He was a successful doctor, mm-hmm. had lots of money. Um, so like what? Yeah, there's there's a reason why he did it. And it's not for financial gain unless he just felt it was just too easy and he was coming up for retirement. And that was his pension fund. Or maybe he did feel that she owed him. Yeah. I mean, his pension Maybe she's been a bit decent. of a difficult patient. Yeah, Maybe, exactly. Yeah. And that's and then, the thing we wouldn't know like his twisted mind might have seen it as well well she was a difficult patient i earned this or i deserve it yeah yeah some people believe that shipman was a necrophiliac so obsessed and excited by inducing and watching death potentially because he came out of the office where he was all flustered didn't he so maybe i mean you know i'm gonna make you i'm gonna make you feel sick now but he could have been masturbating um as he killed her and that's why he was quite uh you know sort of flustered yeah it, it could be and uh, i don't know how to put this you're literally like disgusted. i don't know what to say now yeah. but you don't necessarily but he could have been yeah you're not necessarily going to find that he's done that on the victims so there might not have been any sort of sign that that was the case he might have just no 
There's no Kept proof necessarily. In the... I don't know yeah, how to yeah. say it. <laughs> if, not ejac- if he's not ejaculated over them, then there's not going to be evidence there. But there we go. For you all said we that know, in a nicer way then. Thank you. Um, but for all we know, mm-hmm. yeah, he, he was deriving a sexual pleasure from exactly. this. We just and don't getting know. off on it. Because he was on his own when they died every mm-hmm. time, obviously. So um, I think this is a strong theory. Yeah. I also think perhaps even if it's not in a sexual way, the almost like the thrill and that sort of thing may well have just been exciting in a non-sexual way. And then to get that yeah. rush again, the only way you can get that rush again is to kill again. It could have just been almost like the thrill of getting away with it. And a little bit like what we talked about with Gareth Williams in part two of that episode, we looked at um, some different theories surrounding his death. And one of, well, we looked at, you know, two in particular. So one around, you know, again, a sexual element to um, locking himself in a bag, but also an element of locking himself in a bag just for the thrill of it. So I think it could totally be the same with Shipman here. There could have been the sexual element to the killing. That could have been a motive. Or it could have just been the sheer thrill, like you say, of doing it and getting away with it and the release of endorphins and dopamine that that would spark. And he had an addictive personality because mm-hmm. we knew that he was addicted to pethidine himself. Yeah. Um. So so we could have just got addicted to the, the rush that he gained from murdering people yeah in a non-sexual way yeah potentially or he could have been banging one out as he killed them oh dear sorry (laughs) do you want me to just finish this bit if they showed him photographs of his victims he'd refuse to look and he never made a single statement about the murders mark do you have any theories to share question mark (laughs) <laughs> she, oh, honestly guys i'm so sorry it's easier to keep him in track when we're in the same room i'm Jesus. sorry i'm sorry it was just a bit of a laugh wasn't it it was i mean there's not much to laugh about with this kind of case so well done well done for making yourself happy um i do okay. honestly think though that he was reliving his mum's death this whole thing of elderly women killed with diamorphine it has to be surely yeah, I, I, I do. I'd forgotten about that because obviously we talked about that early on in part mm. one, um, which we recorded yesterday. So, um, yeah, I think that that probably is a very valid explanation. And he didn't he have quite a close relationship with his mother. He did. He was um, clearly her favourite, that sort of thing. But it doesn't yeah. tell you why he killed her. So, but But I don't know. I just don't know. Maybe he felt that he was being close to his mum. Or maybe he wanted to take other people's mothers away from them in the same way that his mother had been taken from him. Yeah, potentially. Either way, he's one fucked up guy. Yeah, absolutely. So can I continue with my script now that I've written and spent a lot of time on that you decided to take over? (laughs) You can certainly continue. Yeah, go for it. Um, So the only thing that I kind of... Just kidding. Fuck off, Mark. Okay, I will stop now. I've been locked in this fucking house for like 10 years now. I'm on under house arrest. I'm like Lindsay Lohan. I'm so sorry. So anyway, the only thing that I kind of can take from this that kind of makes me feel a little bit better is that these women probably didn't know what was happening. They trusted their doctor and the lack of them sort of struggling kind of shows that they would have allowed him to inject them. So I take a little bit of comfort in the fact that they had reasonably peaceful deaths um, and they probably thought that they were having something that was going to help them in some way. So that kind of comforts me a little bit, but it's still just so horrific, isn't it? It's unlikely they would have known, isn't it? Mm. I spent the whole time when I was writing this episode up thinking about the older people that I'm close to, like family members and friends. And 
with this awareness that someone in their 80s may sound like they're old, but they could be incredibly fit and healthy. Yeah. The Shipman Inquiry report led to a number of changes to standard medical procedures in Britain, and these are known as the Shipman Effect, as well as death certification practices. And there were no longer single doctor practices, so instead doctor's practices were made up with a number of GPs. Some doctors then did report that they felt so worried about over-prescribing and being put under suspicion that they went the other way and began to under-prescribe. And I saw a couple of things about people where they were dealing with somebody at the end of their life who was in a lot of pain and then they wouldn't feel able to give them the morphine that they really wanted as someone in pain just in case it killed them and then they were considered under suspicion as well. That's sad, isn't sad, it? Isn't but it, it does also it does also explain why a doctor won't ever prescribe antibiotics for anything. Well, no, that's so that antibiotics don't get resistant whatever nah, sure. because they're just scared of overprescribing i reckon what you think you're going to die from overprescribing antibiotics yeah they're, they're just worried they'll be put under suspicion if they prescribe too many drugs I so think, they've just yeah. picked a random I mean, drug beginning with a you're on one today aren't you yes <laughs> <laughs> but i do agree i think sometimes that they can just be overly cautious about things now but it's for fair reasons really yeah it is of course it is yeah and Dame Smith recommended the introduction of a new standardised set of forms and the system of confirmation by a second doctor should be reviewed. So the person organising a funeral must answer the question, do you know or suspect that the death of a person who has died was violent or unnatural? And do you consider that there should be any further examination of the remains of the person who has died? So if the families of Shipman's victims had been able to answer yes to these questions, maybe the deaths might have been investigated sooner Maybe Shipman yeah. might have been stopped sooner. Yeah, absolutely. So following the death of a patient, a GP will normally issue a medical certificate of course of death and then hand it to the relatives. When the relative applies for a cremation, a second doctor is required to complete a certificate confirming the cause of death. So in Shipman's case, the second doctors didn't really question the relatives. So Dame Smith felt that they should have done so. And if they had done so, they would have learned facts about the deceased person that could have given them cause to look into this further. Like the old lady who was going up a mountain the week before clearly didn't have angina, but the doctors didn't really know that they should look into that. Mm. Um, so she said this actually may have deterred Dr. Shipman from killing so many patients or he could have been detected earlier. So the new structure was for a second doctor to check the first doctor's form. They would be expected to discuss the death with the first doctor as well as the family of the deceased and anybody who was involved in their care. The second doctor would then be expected to query any inconsistencies and to note any worries that they had in submission to the medical referee. The medical referee would then look into the death and could request a post-mortem if they were also not satisfied. If the medical referee was happy, they would be the person authorising the cremation. So a lot more sort of looking at this person's death in a lot more detail. And then doctors were also advised not to simply record cause of death as heart attack, old age, multi-organ failure. They had to be more specific. So really interestingly, the reports did note that specifically, trust in GPs did not seem to be lost following Shipman's convictions. There wasn't a massive reporting of GPs to the police. People still had faith in their own doctors. And I guess this is because, as we saw with Dr. Hanan at the beginning of part one, the doctor who took over Shipman's surgery, Shipman and his secretive behaviours when recording patient information was the exception, not the rule. 
in general, doctors would share their notes with the patients. So this was a surprise for locals in Hyde. But I think in general, people still trusted their doctors. And I think that's really good. Yeah. Well, it would have almost just completely broken down that whole um, setup of, you know, having a GP surgery. And it would have had to completely change, wouldn't it, fundamentally? If, yeah. If people were like, I'm not going to put my trust in my doctor and I'm going to go to hospital every time I need medical attention. Mm. So even now in 2020, Shipman's case is in the UK in the news again. So as the COVID-19 pandemic sweeps the nation, on the 15th of March, it was reported that certain medical safeguards might be temporarily relaxed because ministers are handing sweeping new powers to tackle coronavirus in an attempt to ease the burden on the NHS, um, basically to do with death reporting, burial, etc., So I thought that was quite interesting that these doctors who have had to follow the same rules now for a number of years because of the recommendations that came in after Dr. Shipman are now kind of having some of those things relaxed. And that must be so strange for them. And it must be quite a worrying time for them. I think so. Yeah, because I mean, they're having to deal with so much right now. But but yeah, having some of that restriction taken away um yeah it kind of almost puts them at risk of being accused of doing something that they haven't done Mm -hmm. so they probably liked having the additional regulation after shipman was exposed you know they're working within those boundaries and it safeguards them as much as their patients Mm -hmm. and i understand that the need to relax some of those rules to speed things up now but um but yeah you know i'm sure like you say i'm sure it's a worrying time for them not just because of the day job that they're having to do but the lack of regulations surrounding that and the lack of protection for them Mm. we literally can't do an episode now and not talk about coronavirus either it just literally impacts everything yeah it is it's in everything at the moment yeah well thank you very much for listening guys um and i hope you enjoyed having two episodes again this week we'll go back to normal next week onwards but hopefully you enjoyed it don't forget to check out the show's sponsor, Babbel. If you would like to learn a new language, you can go onto their website, mm-hmm. which is babbel.co.uk. That's B-A-B-B-E-L.co.uk. Um, so, yeah, or you can download their app for free. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you would like to or you are able to support the show through Patreon, then you can find us at patreon.com. No. Yes, patreon.com forward slash a seeing red podcast. And we've got a number of bonus episodes available mm-hmm. over there. Yeah. And I would like to apologize to everyone for Mark's behavior in this episode. <laughs> it wasn't that bad, was it? No. It was the tip of the worse. iceberg. Yeah, you have. I've been worse for you sure. Have. The crew too was, was bad. Anyways, yeah. thank you very much for listening, guys. We'll see you next week. See you next week. Bye. Bye.
Hi angels, it's your girl Louise Romball and I'm the host of the Open House Podcast. Therapy quite literally changed my life and sent me straight into my hot healing girl era. Now, each week I share my story, the good, the bad and the downright juicy and chat with some of the world's best therapists, psychologists and wellness experts. From love, sex and dating to attachment styles, nervous system regulation, wellness hacks, hormone balancing and more, nothing is off the table. I've emptied my bank account on therapy and healing so you don't have to. So if you're ready to leave the past in the past and build the future you've always deserved, me and my favorite experts are waiting for you on the Open House podcast. Listen now wherever you stream your podcasts and I cannot wait to meet you.